We'll be back in Ephesians chapter 2. And um, sermon title is Glorious Good News. And this is our third message under that title. In this paragraph, we've now been here a month, four weeks. It's really a sentence. And it's, a, it's, an, it's an all-inclusive sentence from the pen of Paul. And I think you'll see that in the end, that verse 10 brings full circle what he began in verses 1 and 2. And in preparation of that, it's interesting to me, you know, um, I'm one of the few that still reads the Anderson Star regularly. And, uh, uh, you know, I know you might not, and that's okay. But uh, yesterday in their faith section, they had under Anthony Cook's wonderful article, they had an article about Raymond Moody. Dr. Moody lives in Anniston. And in the 1970s, he wrote a book entitled Life After Life, where he investigated many cases of what were known then as and still are today known as near-death experiences. And we've all heard them. And the problem with that research is that he's, he's, he's a Ph.D. with a degree from, a Ph.D. degree from the University of Virginia. And then he has a medical degree from the Medical School of Georgia. So, he's a brilliant man. The problem he found is scientifically, these near-death experiences were always being explained away by doctors and scientists as a phenomena, a hallucination of the mind, as it's depraved of oxygen, um, as effects of pain medications, and, and, and there's lots of medical and scientific uh, combating against near-death. So recently, Dr. Raymond put pen to paper and wrote for us, uh, a book that's released now that talks to us about shared death experiences. Because now he's moved over into, in his search for eternal life, then the search now and his search for life after death, he's moved over into the field where people are sharing with him that when their loved one died, or when they were a hospice nurse in the room with someone dying, they often felt the same phenomena that we described as near death for the person dying. And that is that they were being somehow lifted up out of the, the, the room, outer body almost, looking at the situation. And there's these warm sensations and these uh, fabulous uh, visions of, of life after Life and it, and even people going to the extremes, and I have not read his book, but just by his words in the star, when people are accounting to him that they begin to see fuzzy, bright light in the distance, and people see that as a sign that there's life after life. And it struck me reading this, because I'm getting ready to preach today on a passage that I think assures us completely that there's life after life. Listen. I believe there's life after this earthly life simply as the children's story goes because the Bible tells me so. I don't have to have an experience at the end of my life to prove to me that there's life after life. What more can He say than to you He has said, to you who to Jesus have fled for refuge? What more can He say? Do you need to have some kind of warm and fuzzy feeling when your loved one dies? 
to know that they're going to a better place? I would say no. And I would say be careful of anyone that tries to sell you on that. Because Satan himself comes clothed as an angel of light. And the reason I say that, and the reason I sound so critical to Dr. Moody, and I, and I don't know him, so I'm not meaning any disrespect, but what I would tell him if he was right there where Eric is, is this. Brother, the problem with all of your scientific research is this. The problem is, it is not based on the full confidence of God's Word. It is based on, cut away from that, it's based on nothing but your experience. And you have now included in the, in the, in this, this from a man, and then I'm going to back it up with something a woman said in the article who claims to be a Christian. What he's trying to tell us is that everybody goes to the light. Everybody lives in eternity, in bliss and peace, in joy. A hospice nurse attending a southern, local Southern Baptist church said this, My experience taught me one thing, and that is whatever faith you have, whether Hindu, Buddhist, or Southern Baptist, all faith brings peace at the end of life. That's the problem with a purely experiential faith. A purely man-centered faith. It kills. It kills. It robs God of His glory. It robs God of what He has rightly claimed as His. And that is that He is the giver of life. And no one has life outside of Him. And anyone who claims to have life outside of Him is a liar. And the truth is not in them. We don't need warm, fuzzy experiences at the end of our life to know there's life after life. We don't need near-death experiences. We don't even need a supposed evangelical to die for 90 minutes and go see the place for us and come back and write a million-dollar book about it. We need to trust what His Word says. Believe it. Listen, in this paragraph, God gives us confidence there's life after life. And I want to show you why I'm saying that. Look with me and let's read through again and remember our outline of this passage as we prepare for verse 10. First, we see we are dead in sin. The New King James and the King James make, a, make interpreters make, or translators make a grave error, in my opinion. If you have a New King James, you will see the first words in verse 1 are, And you who are alive... And it's in italics. It means they added it. It is not in the Greek. That's always dangerous. That's always dangerous. It's not always wrong. And what they said here is not wrong. It just takes the emphasis away from what Paul's trying to say. Paul is emphasizing in verse 1, you are dead. And you, the first words, and you who are dead in your trespasses and sins. We are dead in our sin. In which you once walked... According to the course of this world, which is our second point in our teaching, which is we are enslaved to the ways of this world. We are walking according to the course. We are enslaved to it. We can't get out of it. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, we're not only slaves to the course of this world, we're slaves to Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, both Jews and Greeks, once walked. We once lived this way, in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, 
we are in our natural state deserving God's wrath. Which comes finally in hell. Verse 3 is a crucial verse to show us that everyone is not okay with God. God isn't this ushy-gushy Santa Claus that's going to eventually save everybody whether they believe in His Son or not. Verse 4, But God. Our children are getting it. I'm getting testimonies from parents that the children now get but God. Everything now is but God. But God. I'm waiting on the first report of when the spanking's coming and they say, But God. I'm sure it'll come, especially after I said that, probably from my own children. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. I don't need an experience at the end of my life to help me know there's eternal life or life after life because He's made me alive in Christ. Something very different than physical life is happening now inside of me. It is spiritual, eternal life. So I don't need to have warm fuzzies at the end of my life. I don't need it. I have His Word. His Word says, you have fled to Jesus in refuge, then I've made you alive. And look what else it says. Having raised us up now. Raised us up now with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Proof of life after life. We're seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. That's our positional dwelling place. It's not our practical place of of abode right now. That's why we use the analogy of a pilgrim on a journey. We are journeying to our final destination. We're not there yet. But the fruit of it is now being realized in this life. Through the life of the Spirit which is now alive in us, we are reaping even now the fruit of eternity. We're not waiting to one day be alive in Christ. We are alive in Christ. We're not waiting to one day inherit the blessing of the Spirit. We have the blessing of the Spirit. You see? Life of eternity begins at regeneration, not at death. Not at death. And so, he says, we're seated with Him. We're raised up in Christ. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Why, Paul? So that in the coming ages, the eon upon eon, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He's done it so He might pour now out His kindness on His people forever and ever and ever. I find this much more compelling than fuzzy bright lights in a corner when someone's passing away. I find this to be firm ground. I find that to be ever-shifting sand. Ever-shifting sand. And so, he has made his point there. And then last week we talked about our salvation coming by grace. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith... Through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. We are saved by grace through faith. And we proved that last week, I believe, 
And there were some still lingering questions there in your mind because it has become very popular to talk about faith like it is a work, like it's something I possess and everyone else possesses, the Hindu possesses it, the Buddhist possesses it, but that's not true. Faith is not a natural born uh, character of man. Faith is given by God. Saving faith is a gift from God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And look what he says. And this, in the original, is that is not your own doing. Do we need more emphasis to know that he's talking about faith here? At the very least, he's talking about faith. That faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Faith is the gift of God. Grace is the condition by which He saves all men who are joined to Christ. And faith is the gift that puts the two together. It's the instrument. I've thought a lot about it this week. I don't know if this helps you, but think of it this way. I shared this with Jesse this week. Think of it this way. God has, and we're going to get there in a minute, God is in, now that He's regenerated you, He has made you a new house. And He has wired the house for power. The wire, the conduit is faith. He put it in the walls of your house. And it becomes effective at the moment of regeneration. Faith becomes active, cleaving to Christ, which is the power source external to the house. So the faith connects us to the power source, which then infuses our whole life with the power of God. You get it? A bowl, a straw, a conduit, a mouth, as, as only Spurgeon can say, to receive the food of God and chew up the blessings of God. But I think of it this way in our modern time. The, light, the lights are on in our house not because of the conduit, but because of the power that flows through the conduit. The copper wires in the walls of your house are useless unless they're hooked to the right power source. And when they're hooked to the right power source, it makes all the difference. Jesus is the power source. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith, faith is the conductor grabbing hold of the power source and sending it through. And as Steve knows from his trip home last Monday, if, if the power source doesn't hit the contactor in the right place, which is faith, then it destroys. It doesn't bring life. That's what happens in judgment. The power source, the consuming fire of God hits those who have no faith in Christ. And when it does, it is hell. It destroys. And so, we have been blessed beyond measure in Christ. That's what He's telling us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. What connects faith to the power source is regeneration. The work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit taking that gift of God and laying it on to Christ. And what connects faith to the power source is the actual believing of the human. It's, a, it, it's, a, it's an act that God does by Himself. And then we conclude by obeying and following in belief. And, and, and that is a beautiful truth. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, so that no one can boast because it's not of works. And that that phrase is going to be key as we get to 10 now, to talk about 10. Because look what he says in verse 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that is the gift of God, not of works. 
He mentions works in a very negative connotation. Not of works, so that none of us can boast. And then look what he says. For, he, another connector word, for we are His creation. We are His new creation. We are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's not by works, but you've been created for good works. Okay, Paul, which is it? Works or no works? Both and. Don't make a choice. There's no need to make a choice here. God saves us by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, and in that salvation He made us for His good work. The power of this verse is the proof that there is life after life. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not a work so that you can't boast. It is a gift of God. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Faith sets us up to gather in the power of God, harness the power of God for a life of obedience. We are God's new creation. That's the first thing we come in contact with. You for we are God's workmanship. That word workmanship is it's often used talking about poetry, talking about sheets of music, talking about art and painting, but in the Bible it's always used not in that context, but in the context of God creating with his hands. It is the idea possessed in Genesis chapter 1 when he says he formed Adam out of the ground he formed him, that is workmanship. In Adam, the old humanity was created. This shell, this body was created. In sin, we were separated, and now God is forming new life for us. Because you can't just be saved from your mother's womb and enter the kingdom of God. What does Jesus say? You must be born again born from on high, that's the idea here. We are God's new creation. We are God's new creation. So He has come all the way down the paragraph, the sentence, and He has talked about the work of God in, in the context of taking you from death to life, raising you from that dead state to seated with Christ. He's taken you now and said, that was done by grace, through faith, all of it the work of Christ, infused, or not infused, but imparted to you in His righteousness. It's, it, it's a beautiful picture. And then He caps it off with this, the highest of good, which is this. You are His creation. He made you new. He made you new. You might wonder, why do we keep reading passages from Colossians when we're preaching in Ephesians? Because they're parallel passages. What Tony read in a paragraph or two, Paul writes here in one statement. What, what Tony just read, all that about the old man passing away and putting away anger and malice and all those things, sexual immorality, and then he transitioned to what? Put on the new creation. Think of the things that are above. That, that's this verse right here. That's the ex explanation. That's the expounding. So we look here and we say, there are two ages in the New Testament. There are only two ages, as I see it, that is the age we now live in and the age that is to come. In Paul's thinking, there are two ages. 
now and future. Okay? But the mistake that's been made often in understanding verses like this and verses that we call dealing with the subject of eschatology in things, last things, the mistake we often make is we too, too often segment them, separate them completely. And we say, well, now there is no kingdom, or if it is, it's not, it's not really evident, but then when He comes again, we'll have the kingdom of God. And that's not how the New Testament speaks. You listen and you hear in Jesus this, the kingdom of God has come near. When He came on the scene, He came preaching the kingdom of God. What does that mean? And, and, and we're going to talk about that, okay? Because this verse is a, is, a, is a marrying of the two ages. The age that is now and the age that is to come. They're not two completely separate ages. They're overlapping one another. They're overlapping one another and we see it in this verse. The kingdom of God has broken into this world. It has come through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look, hold your place here and turn to Luke chapter 4. Just... just uh, Quickly, I want, to, I want to show you what I'm saying about Jesus. How His ministry is the breaking in of the kingdom of God. And verse 16, And Jesus came to Nazareth. Interestingly, Jesus begins His ministry. His baptism occurs, which is a parallel to the baptism of the people of God crossing the Red Sea. Jesus was also baptized, just like Israel was baptized. Jesus was led out into the wilderness by the Spirit and tempted 40 days, just as Israel was led out into the wilderness and tempted for 40 years. Jesus did it perfectly. They failed. They were baptized, and the effect was not full in grafting into the people of God. There were lost and saved people that crossed the Red Sea and came out the other side. But Jesus, when He was baptized, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then He's led immediately into the wilderness. Why? Because He's tempted in every way like His brothers, yet without sin. They were tempted and failed. He was tempted and He did not fail. What's God telling us? He's Israel. He is the true Israel. He is the fulfillment of what Israel was thought to be by Old Testament saints. Jesus is the true Israel. And then He shows it even clearer. Look what He does now. His kingdom and His, uh, his ministry begins in, in verse 16. Where does He go? He goes back to His hometown. And then He came to Nazareth where He had been brought up. And as was His custom, He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And He rolled up the scroll, He gave back to the attendant, He sat down, and the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on Him. And He began by saying, Today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. They had read Isaiah 61 wrong for, for hundreds of years. Because they saw that as a promise that Israel would in the future, the nation of Israel would in the future become the vehicle by which God justified the people. Work to bring justice to the earth through this physical kingdom. Jesus says, no, you missed it. I'm bringing the kingdom of God. 
I'm bringing justice for all people. I'm going to set the poor to riches. I'm going to set the captive free. I'm going to heal the blind. I'm going to heal the lame. Israel, the nation, can't do it. I can. I'm the true Israel. Oh, this two-age idea comes to full light now. We have this age and the age that is to come, and the two have overlapped because Jesus stepped out of eternity and entered our age. And His work now has brought near the kingdom of God. And so we see it in His work. Look, look with me uh, for Paul, for reference in Paul, since we're talking about Paul. We want to see that the new creation is presented in Paul's teaching this way. So, what is it, what is it, where does he teach? Look in Romans chapter 8. I find this very interesting in relation to our text. In Romans chapter 8, Paul has led up to the point where he now is going to explain that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you should put to death sin, but you should put to death sin in the flesh by the Spirit. The kingdom that is coming has broken into this world and it lives in us through Jesus Christ and His Spirit. Look what he says in verse, uh, if we look in verse uh, 12 and begin there, and then, and then I want to show you what the connection. For, or so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's this age. You, if you live in this age, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now the age that is coming is broken into this age through the work of the Holy Spirit. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit of God is the proof that there is life after life. He bears witness in us that we are the children of God. And we are adopted into His family. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be also be glorified with Him. The age coming has broken into this age through the work of Jesus Christ, the ministry of Jesus Christ, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And He raised, He was raised up by the power of God, seated at the right hand of the Father, and He then poured out the Spirit onto His people, and they became prophets, and they became indwelt, they became the tabernacle. Listen! Listen, the age that's coming is broken in, and it's broken in through God's people as they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, if He stopped there, it would be awesome, but He doesn't stop there. Four, because this is true, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So He says that kingdom has come already, but not yet. It has been inaugurated, but not consummated. We're still waiting on the fulfilling, full, the full fulfilling of the kingdom. It's still coming. Look what he says. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is this age wrapped up in sin. 
the course of this world being completely controlled by Satan, yet the kingdom of God has come near in Jesus Christ and His ministry. He has been crucified, buried, raised, ascended, seated in power, pouring out the Spirit, and now the whole of creation sees the future glory it will receive in the new creation. And what He does through the rest of that paragraph is show us that the kingdom, when it comes, will be the new heaven and the new earth. Oh, what a beautiful truth that we have the future with us present now. And it changes works. Because what formerly was works unto death, now prepared beforehand by God, so we should walk in them in the Spirit, become life. Become proof and evidence of life. All the differences in this between 9 and 10. 9 is, you can't work your way to heaven. 10 is, You have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. And now you are in Christ, a new creature, able to work for His glory. The works which He prepared for you. That's all the difference is the kingdom coming. What a beautiful picture. 2 Corinthians 5, for time's sake we won't read it, says, You are a new creation created in Christ Jesus. The old is gone. The new has come. What is Paul saying? In each of us... Grafted into Christ now, we are evidence that there is life after life. We are evidence that there is a true kingdom of God which is coming into the world. We are the first, we, we have inherited with the first fruits the future kingdom and we live it now in some senses. It's not the full weight that we will receive, but it is here and it is real. Colossians 3. Matter of fact, all of Paul's imperative statements, commands of obedience are based on Ephesians 2.10 Theology When he tells you to do something He's not telling you to work harder He's telling you Live in the Spirit Walk in the works Which God already did Already prepared That you should do them And you do them in the Spirit So he's not commanding you To pull yourself up by your bootstraps And work harder He's saying You can't do it. But the Spirit in you can do it. So what excuse do we have to sin? Would be Paul's question, I think. What excuse? You say, well, I'm in the flesh. Yes and no. Yes, you are. The flesh is there and it's real, but the Spirit of God is in you. So you have no excuse. I have no excuse. When I sin, I'm guilty of that. And yet not under condemnation because the Spirit is in me. And He brings me to repentance and reconciliation. If a person can willfully sin repetitively for a lifetime, he is not God's child. It doesn't matter what he says with his mouth. We are God's new creation. And as new creation, we don't go on sinning in the flesh willfully with no check. And as if it doesn't matter. Because He has prepared for us the work that we should do. The Holy Spirit resides in us, therefore the kingdom is growing throughout the world as the new creation spreads to every tribe and every tongue. This is the already not yet tension of the New Testament. This is the inaugurated kingdom slash consummated in the future kingdom of the New Testament. This is, this is what we're learning here. For too often we've talked about salvation as if it will be at the end of time. Paul talked about it as a past event, present event, and future event. 
He's saying here, you're already a new creation. You're not what you will be in the consummated kingdom, but you're already a new creation. And when you get there, oh, what glory it will be. You will look just like Him. And so His moral imperatives are based out of that truth, that the Spirit lives in us. We are God's new creation. Second, we see that we are the new creation in and through Christ. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship. We are God's created beings. Created in Christ. We are His created beings, but we are that only in Christ. You can also read it as, We are what we are through Christ. God made each of us new creations, but He did it only because of Christ. Does that help? There's no new life without Christ. And that life comes in Him, and it comes by Him, and it comes through Him. He is all in all. It comes by His work, it comes in a relationship with Him, and it comes through Him continuing to dwell in you through the Spirit. If the Spirit moved out of you, If the Spirit was withdrawn from you, which we know cannot happen, but if it was, your new life would die. It would be marred just like the old. It would fall again. The only thing keeping you from hell is the presence of Christ in you. It's not as Dave so rightly said it and the confession told us. It's not infused into us as if it's ours now. It is imparted to us. It is still His. If He drew it back, we would be lost. It never crosses the line of becoming my righteousness. Not even in the kingdom. It's always Christ's and He always is holding me in salvation. And so, the new creation is possible through the work of Christ. The new creation is only possible in Jesus Christ, in a relationship with Christ. The new creation doesn't recognize, and this is where, and it's interesting to me that he bridges over to our next paragraph with this verse. He tells us how we get saved, both Jew and Gentile, and it's through Christ. And then he uses 10 as a bridge to get us to where he's going. In the new creation, there is no distinction now. Between Jew and Greek. Why? Because the spirit that dwells in me is the spirit that dwells in a, in a person believing in the tribe of Papua, Indonesia. It's the same spirit dwelling in a, a converted Islamic follower in Egypt. It's the same spirit that dwells inside of any natural born Jew who has come to Christ for refuge. It's the same spirit. Therefore, there's no division. There's no separation. And he's going to expound verse 10 in verses 11 through 22. Anytime you create a separation of any kind between God's people, you are on unbiblical ground. You had to work to get there somehow behind the scene of the Bible. The Bible says we are now one man in Christ. This creation is one man. So it is illogical to think that there is any division left. There is no division. I would contend to you that we could go to Papua, Indonesia, and we could go to their worship service this morning, and the only thing that would separate us is a language barrier which is overcome by translation. 
When they celebrate Christ, we would celebrate with them. When we celebrate Christ, they would celebrate. If the Spirit is in both of us, it would be the same worship. There's no other way except through Christ. And He brings in this new creation one new man. One new man without distinction. Third, we are the new creation that walks in the preordained works which God prepared beforehand. So we get to the sanctification part. We get to the part where it's difficult for us to wrap our mind around how God has done it, and yet we are doing it. That one's hard, isn't it? I have a friend of mine, and we were chatting back and forth last night, and uh, he asked what I was preaching about. I told him what I'm preaching about. He he says, oh, you, you really believe Ephesians 2.10? You know, just joking. I said, yes, I really believe it. He said, then everything I do is ordained by God, therefore it's sanctified. He was picking. But that's a mistake we often make, isn't it? A man goes and commits adultery against his wife and he's a believer and he blames who? God. He says, well, God prepared this that I would walk through it. That's not in this verse. That's not in this verse. Now, for the first time, Paul brings in responsibility for the believer. For you are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to walk according to the works which He prepared beforehand, that you should walk in them. He prepared for you works to do for His glory. But you are responsible for doing the work. Paul said, I'm the least of the apostles as one born out of time out of order but I'm the least of the apostles and everything I am is the grace of God working in me and I'm telling you I strive with everything within me all my energy that I would work for God and yet is the grace of God working in me that's the marriage I strive to work for God on His grace and by His grace and through His grace The working and the grace are not separate in verse 10 like they are in verse 9. In verse 9, the idea is you do a lot of good work, God receives you. That damns you to hell. In verse 10, he's saying all the work you're striving to accomplish is the work which God prepared for you and gave you the grace to do. Therefore, it's His work being done in you and through you and even by you and yet in you and, I mean, in Christ and through Christ and by Christ. That's the unity of sanctification. We should be careful. With this verse, it can be dangerous when we begin to talk like this. This is an inclusio. This is an envelope. This is tying it all together. Look back at verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in in which you once walked. Verse 10, you are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared beforehand that you should what? Walk in them. Paul ties the bow here. He closes it up by saying, You were dead and walking according to the ways of this world, and now God has made you alive, raised you up with Christ, seated you in the heavenly places for His own kindness to be poured out on you for all the ages to come. So now you walk in the good works He prepared for you. Whenever we thunder about holy lives, we should only thunder about the grace of God. Practically for parents, this is very hard. It's very hard. Because we want our children to be holy, and often it's without the Holy Spirit. And so we have to be careful in our discipline, don't we? 
that we're disciplining them to bring them into conformity with outward convention that they might learn who Christ is, but we should never be teaching them work salvation. We should always be saying while we're disciplining them, I'm disciplining you to bring you under obedience that you might hear the Word of God, but you cannot do it on your own. We should be telling them that. Some people say, that's frustrating. I know. They need to be frustrated. We need to do the same thing with adults who are outside of Christ. A man is unfaithful to his wife. We need to go to that man, if he's a lost man, and call him not to be unfaithful to his wife and to dwell with her and love her and only her. And then we need to tell him at the end of the conversation, if you try to do it on your own, you'll fail. You have no hope. You can't do it. Only through salvation and coming in union with Christ can you now be free of this sin. We need to always marry our talk of discipline with grace. We never need to become legalists. Paul doesn't do that here. He ties the bow for this great sentence by saying, you're now walking in God's work. If we claim to be part of the new creation through Christ, we have His Spirit in us, we have His Word to guide us, and we have no excuse to sin. Will we sin? Yes. Is it excusable? Never. Never is it excusable. That's what's so painful in this life. As the two ages overlap, we see the incompleteness and it drives us crazy. We see the inconsistency and it drives us nuts in our own life, don't we? Because we, as much as we would like to say it's finished and it's done and I'm going to live perfectly, we don't live perfectly. The, the tug of the Spirit is in us, and He's tugging us to Christ, and the confession and the grasping in Christ, and yet the world's pulling, ever pulling, that we would go and do the things of this world. And the two things are at war. And so, in this age, as the new age has come breaking in, it's not fulfilled completely. In its fullness, we don't see it. And so we're still the need for confession. And that's what we're going to do through the Lord's Supper. We're going to draw near to the source of our good works. We're going to draw near to the One who has prepared for us what we couldn't do in our flesh. We're going to draw near to Him again in communion. And we're going to call on Him to guide us, to lead us with His Spirit, that we might be new creatures. That we might be that way tomorrow and the next day through His grace. 